The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to be with you all this Sunday. And so, uh, as many of you know, we've been looking at this very important uh, set of meditation instructions, probably the most complete, uh, sophisticated or detailed meditation instructions we get from the Buddha, passed down all these many years, the Anapanasati Sutta, the Discourse on Breathing In and Breathing Out, and as you, for those of you who've been following along, you know that really just the first few instructions out of the 16 are we using the breath, the physicality of the breath as the main meditation object. And then it very quickly switches to basically observing the heart, the mind, that's knowing the breath, that's being with the breath. So this set of 16 instructions, of course, is the whole path. It's just that the physicality of breathing in and out is kind of the background, keeps us in the present moment. So the work of being aware of the mind and the liberation of the heart and mind is all grounded in this embodied state of, of a body breathing, which is really, that's the Buddha knowing Dhamma that we chanted at the beginning, right? We want to wake up to the totality, this embodied reality. This is the place for awakening, not like when I have a perfect situation, but what is freedom, what is wisdom and love when it's like this, an ordinary guy, you know, in a complicated life? What is that freedom? That's the freedom I'm interested in. So we're specifically these last weeks, we'll finish up at the end of April with this topic that we've been looking at since the beginning of January. Um, so we have a few more weeks left and we're focusing now on the last four instructions. So 13, 14, 15 and 16, because there's 16 instructions. And it's really this awareness of the process of the heart letting go. And remember, you know, the predicament of the Buddha trying to share his own insight, his own experience, is that when he articulated, when he created teaching tools, you know, articulated teachings, he had to use a description that was natural because we, you and I, we don't let go of what needs to be let go of. That's, that was the discovery, letting go. Just like suffering is like a whirlpool. It's a natural process that keeps the mind experiencing in ways that cause the heart body to grip. And then the grip causes the mind to spin in a way that causes the mind and heart to grip. So there's a feedback loop that, a natural feedback loop, an impersonal feedback loop that keeps us tight and then in our tightness we make the world tight with greed, hatred and delusion. That's why there's so much suffering, so much oppression, so much ignorance. And so the awakening process also doesn't depend on a 
you know, permanent self who all of a sudden is good instead of being bad and now is doing the right thing instead of the bad thing. And then he's sort of the, or she or they, are the person that sort of liberates themselves. No, it's not how it happens. It's a natural process. And so these last four instructions is just a description of a natural process. But what really helps is this profound healing that we went through in the first 12 instructions, where we're discovering that calm, the body that is settled. How does the body get settled? Because the mind that knows the body isn't being judgmental, and it isn't being hateful, and it isn't needing the body to be different. Like if there's pain in the body, for example, or stiffness in the body, the first four steps, you know, we're learning the calm is precisely the natural effect of the mind being intimate with the body without judgment, including the totality of the sensations without picking and choosing, without judging, without freezing up. That's the calm. It's not the calm because our body is perfectly healthy, because you could do this practice being really sick or really old, and you could do it well. Because the calm is the mind being okay with embodiment as it is. That's the tranquility that's experienced. The body is settled because the mind is accepting it, is intimate with it. And acceptance depends on that intimacy. There's no healing of the body and mind without the sensitive heart being intimate with the body. That's, in a way, the crux. Like, if you want that profound, calm healing, you have to be willing, the mind, the heart has to be willing to suffuse, to integrate, to include the totality of the body. No blind spots, nothing left out, right? Because if I'm like not looking at some part of the body because there's a yucky feeling there, then I need all kinds of tension to sort of close that part off. So the real calm, the real tranquility comes when we figure out, when the heart-mind figures out that it can include the totality of the body. And then too, you know, we have a lot of habit energy in our mind, in our heart emotional, psychological tendencies, patterns, reactivity, right? And so this is the next level of healing. Where, and the way the Buddha realizes that works is to keep in mind joy and ease. Just keep it in mind. Keep it, it doesn't mean that our, we're all healed and we've done all the therapy we need to do and we don't have sort of hidden emotional, psychological, spiritual wounds. No, it just means we're really keeping in mind uh, joy and ease, contentment. And just that, so again, it's a training. Can I just keep this in mind? And what disturbs that training? I think I have to look at my problems. So here we're temporarily not looking at our problems. Whatever might kind of show up in the course of meditation, we're not suppressing or repressing it, we're just letting it fall into the background in the space of the present moment. But we're choosing to keep the joy and then eventually that matures into more resonant ease and contentment. We're keeping that in mind. 
We're keeping that in mind. We're keeping that in mind. And it gives the heart a lot of resilience, a lot of safety, which is what our heart needs. Because when there's a lot of safety, then we can look at all those places, wounds, unfinished business, that are sort of percolating there in the background of our consciousness, let's call it, right? We can be aware, that's the third instruction in the second set of four, where we're really working with the activity of our mind, emotional, psychological habits, right? But we first develop a profound interest in uh, joy and ease. And then we notice all the activity of the heart and mind, all the unfinished business, whatever's percolating, whatever wants to move, yeah, you can move. And we develop, now we have a lot of dispassion because there's another way for me to take care of those wounds. Instead of thinking about them, I can just let them do what they need to do. So we're letting mental activity, emotional activity, we're letting it move. We're not afraid of it. And the reason we're not afraid of it is we're grounded in ease. Because we feel that inner goodness of ease, contentment, we can really let healing happen. And that's what quiets everything down in the level of mental activity, emotional activity, is we've given it permission to do what it wants to do anyway. And we're not afraid of it doing what it wants to do. So we're talking about years, maybe decades, maybe lifetimes of practice in all these stages, right? And who knows, maybe we've been at it for lifetimes. Does anybody know? We don't know, you know? Certainly some of us have been at it for decades. And uh, we're just, we keep doing it because it works. And thinking about where we are doesn't actually help the work. It just postpones the work. So we don't put a lot of attention like, Am I close? Am I getting to where the Buddha got? You know, or am I lifetimes, eons away from any release? Because the thing about the practice is, wherever we are, even if we're sort of the most ranked beginner of all human beings, the, the, um, the benefits of the practice come all the way through the practice. So it's not like the practice doesn't deliver any goods until we're at that nth degree of the practice, you know, then becoming the next Buddha or something like that, right? No, that's why we can have a lot of confidence because the healing of the body and mind, the healing of these psychological, emotional wounds, and the deeper spiritual insights that come, they come all the way along. And it's not, as I've said often, it's not linear in the way that I'm talking about it today and then the past weeks. We just use this linear map as a way of learning it. But then it's kind of like we let our life and our meditation practice rip. And any sit might be more here or more there or more in the middle. But we just work with where the heart, the heart and mind is at on that particular day or in that particular moment. So the second set of four instructions, we're really working with awareness of mental activity. And the way we're able to be wise with mental activity is we keep joy and ease in mind. And that gives us a lot of dispassion so that we can, we're willing, the mind is willing to just let 
emotional, mental activity that needs to move, move. And this quiets down some of that mental activity, that emotional activity. Things settle. And when things settle, we can shift in those moments in our practice. Whenever they arise, we immediately shift to the third set of four instructions, which is about opening not to the activity or the unresolved activity of our heart and mind, but to the space of the knowing mind, the space of awareness, the space of the present moment. It's a more subtle aspect of what's always here and now. It doesn't just show up when the mind is in that refined place. It's here now, it's always been here, but it's subtle. So when our mind is busy with doing and being a somebody, we tend not to notice the space. With many years of good practice, then that's one of the telltale signs. Like if you ask people who've been at it for a long time, what are the fruits of practice? Is even in the busyness of a day, that, that, that intuitive sense of the space, the silent, the peaceful, and the empty space of the present moment, that intuition is there even when you're having an argument or more and more often at least. And, and the thing is, it, it gives the heart, it gives the mind a lot of fearlessness and a lot of equanimity even when the personality, let's say, is involved in responsibilities and things are getting activated and triggered. So we may not even be our best self, you know, in terms of the person personality habits that are getting triggered. But there remains, even in that person, a sense of space, a sense of silence, a sense of emptiness, even when the person from the outside looks like an ordinary neurotic human being. We don't really know, like we have to have a lot of humility. I mean, we get a sense like how unskillful or skillful a person is in different situations, but we really don't know always and often even like, and this keeps us from judging people like where they are spiritually because, um, Habits can get triggered, and there may not be enough sort of transformation of one's personality to keep ourselves from acting out, but there can be that silent, clear, peaceful space, even as the mind, the sort of more, the activity of the mind is being unskillful, doing something stupid, uh, causing harm even. And, and what that allows for is a more quick sense of, oh yeah, that was really stupid, and I forgive myself, and I'm going to fearlessly make amends for having made that mistake, right? So that's more what, what, is, uh, what we all notice, is not that we immediately stopping, stop making mistakes, but that there's a more uh, less toxic re recognition that I've made a mistake, Oh yeah, that happens sometimes. We don't personalize the mistakes, we take responsibility for them. Okay, what needs to be done? Given that this mistake happened and I caused harm in this way, what do I need to do? Well, first I need to forgive myself because hating myself isn't helpful, it isn't functional. So I'm going to forgive myself because whatever just happened, that's nature. 
sets off. But I'm in this location where I'm taking responsibility for it, but I'm not going to neurotically hate myself. And then when I'm, because I'm not neurotically hating myself, I can kind of sense what got set in motion around me and make amends and take care of the business, you know, the whatever I set in motion by being unskillful. And so this third set of instructions were really understanding this space of, let's just call it space of awareness. And then the more I know that stillness, that silence, that empty space of awareness, because awareness is empty. Experience is being known by awareness. But the awareness itself has this pristine, silent, empty vibe to it. That's how we know we're doing the work of that third set of four instructions. And the reason that's so functional, so useful, is that the more we can intuit the space of the silent, empty, quiet, knowing mind, the more it's easy to notice subtle doing, subtle intending, subtle willing. Like even the intention to be concentrated or the intention to stay still and peaceful. Because we want to realize that the heart and mind actually isn't dependent on any kind of intentionality, any kind of creating something, being somebody, that all of that can be released. Any kind of doing, any kind of being, any kind of intending, volition, all of that can cease. So that's really the work of the fourth, uh, the third set of four instructions, is we're getting to know the space of the mind, and, and in that, as the more that we can intuit the space of the present moment, the more it will be obvious, the more subtle sense of doing, the old subtle habit of being somebody, like even somebody who is consuming, enjoying the peace that can be let go of. We don't need a sense of somebody who's enjoying or appreciating the peacefulness. And so that last step then, so that would be, um, I guess, step 12, is the, the Buddha says, you know, breathing in, liberating the mind, breathing out, liberating the mind. So we're training ourselves to liberate, to release the mind of any kind of holding, any sort of dependence. So we have that, that's an insight. Like we see something we haven't probably seen before. The mind that has released what it can release. And it's not like all at once, where the mind is engaged in some activity, relatively gross activity, still pretty subtle at this stage, but then, because of the quiet, the mind realizes that activity. It's only when the mind realizes an activity that it can release the identification, the dependence. We're not pushing activity away. We're just realizing the activity and realizing the mind doesn't need to be dependent on it or personalizing it. And that's the letting go. So there's like many, many of these letting goes where we realize there's some selfing and then we let go that that selfing isn't needed. 
So that selfing is let go of. And then the mind's more quiet, and because it's more quiet, we could see more subtle selfing. Oh, there's that selfing. And because that selfing is seen clearly without judgment, as being not needed and subtly stressful, that can be let go of. And we don't know when this is going to be done. We just like notice the selfing we can notice and realize it's not needed that in this moment things can be really released, really subtle, really peaceful. Is it okay to let go? You can even ask that question. Is this needed? This sense of self doing something, is it needed? What happens if I just relax this? Relax the attachment or the dependence on this doing, this selfing? Oh, totally safe. It's even better. So it's like a peeling away of the more subtle selfing, habits of selfing, being a somebody, doing a something. Because it's a very pervasive, deep habit. But we relied on that self, the doing, to get to the subtle place. And precisely because we're in the subtle place, we use it to reveal the self-centered doing, to explore if it's safe to let it go. Any dependence on anything, yeah. And that gives the heart a real sense of the awakening, of the direction of awakening that the Buddha, the Buddhist teachings point to. And that's really what the fourth set of instructions are all about. We've been reviewing this, where we're keeping the reality but the more subtle end of reality, that everything's in motion, so impermanence. We're just keeping that in mind, keeping it in mind, and we're igniting or setting in motion a natural process of letting go. So this is the cool thing, because we can think, God, I can't wait until I'm able to let go of my attachments. You know, we might be, probably we all are in, in different ways, aware of how burdened our heart is with our attachments. Maybe some of you who are parents notice how attached we are to our kids, or you have an older dog and you're attached to the dog and knowing that the death of the dog is more likely because they're, you know, whatever, 12 years old or 15 years old. Or you're aware of the financial insecurity, or right? So we're aware of our attachments and, and we, can aspire probably if we have enough space in our mind, like we can imagine not being so afraid, not so attached, not so dependent on, right? And even like a really wholesome relationship with your partner, let's say, if you have a partner or a good friend or a parent or something like that, you might be able to imagine like this relationship would be even better if I, were, if I didn't have this attachment or this dependence. I could really be a better friend, a better partner, a better child, a better sister or brother or whatever, if I wasn't so afraid, if I wasn't so dependent. But what actually leads to the dropping away of attachment? That's what the last set of four instructions deal with, 13 to 16. So 13 is, the Buddha says, contemplate the reality of impermanence that everything is in motion, everything is changing. So if you're in a meditation, it might be you notice the in and out breath, but you're noticing not the so much the sensations of breathing in and out, 
you're noticing that it's never a thing breathing. It's like a river. It's always in motion. And if a lot of thoughts show up, you don't look at the content of your thoughts. You notice that thoughts are like a river too. They just keep moving. And if there's some emotional reaction, you don't, you don't need to name the emotion. You notice the flow, the emotion is like a river. So whatever phenomena is front and center in your experience, you're keeping impermanence in mind. So with step 13, breathing in, breathing out, we're training the mind to keep impermanence, the insubstantial, ephemeral, uncertain, unreliable nature of mental and emotional and physical experience in mind. So it's a relatively subtle thing, of course, but we can get better. And it's not like we're trying to construct something. We're just seeing what's already here, always been here, but we just haven't had the skill to notice. Like this moment right now, whatever your predominant experience is, whether it's you're feeling your body sitting or contemplating the meaning of the words I'm speaking or feeling a little cold or whatever it might be for all of us, can we notice that this experiencing is a flow, endless flow, unreliable flow, unpredictable, uncertain, I don't know where this flow is flowing to, what will be next in the flow. It's not our habit because our minds are so uh, language-bound, concept-bound. Concepts create the appearance of staticness and solidity. Like if I say, have the thought, oh, I'm in my living room. There's a certain, <clears throat> you know, like that's a place, that's a thing. But it's also what's here and now is the experiencing of the thought, I'm in my living room. That's very ephemeral. That's very uncertain because there's another thought around the corner and then another thought and another experience and it never stops, just keeps moving. So we keep that in mind until we, it leads to where it will naturally lead to, which is a deeper more pervading, pervasive sense of disenchantment and dispassion. Now, we may not think we like dispassion and disenchantment, but remember, being enchanted means being tight. <laughs> Whatever the enchantment is, something I like, something I don't like, but it, the experience seems permanent, real enough to trigger tightness, enchantment. Passion. Now, I don't know if people realize the word passion means suffering. You know, it's kind of gotten co-opted in English where we think passion is the same as like a fullness of living, right? I'm a passionate human being. I show up in my life in a full way. I don't hold back. Yeah, that sounds really skillful to live our life without holding back, without fear. That sounds like being enlightened. But passion, the word passion means being tight. Same with enchanted, right? We're deluded. We're, we're thinking things are what they're not. So dispassion, disenchantment is a release from the enchantment, a, a release from the grip. 
So the natural, the proximate cause for that release is seeing the ephemeral changing, flowing movement of experiencing. Whether we're experiencing the mind or we're experiencing the body. It's a river. And the heart lets go of enchantment. And when the heart lets go of enchantment, then that more subtle um, selfing, misunderstanding, misperceiving, framing things in terms of I, me, and mine, that can cease. Because the use of the self-view, using self-centeredness, depends on being enchanted. So as, uh, as enchantment and passion begin to quiet, then selfing loses its support. Because the reason I frame things as self is because it feels tight, right? So it's a lawful thing. We don't get involved in self-centeredness because we're stupid. It's a lawful process. Because I'm not seeing the changing nature, I take everything seriously. I'm enchanted by it, full of passion. I'm tight. Because I'm tight, there must be a me here. So I frame it in terms of me having an experience that I like, that I don't like, that I don't care about. So if we keep the changing nature in mind, disenchantment, dispassion, when there's disenchantment and dispassion, selfing ceases. That's the second to last step. When selfing ceases, self-centeredness, the habit of framing things in terms of I, me, and mine, when that activity, that's a subtle activity, but when that ceases, then the mind realizes the path, which is the reality of non-grasping, no craving, no self-centered craving. Oh, this is the freedom the Buddha points to. The mind empty of grasping, empty of craving. Now that's not the same as a mind, a heart that can't raise children or do this and do that. And this is what I thought would be useful in the small groups. Hopefully a number of you can stay for the next 15 minutes for the small groups. But just to share like the fear we have of non-craving <laughs> or non-attachment. It's just interesting to unpack with some Dharma friends like, what am I afraid of, you know, when I explore practices that lead onward to non-attachment and non-craving? What's the fear? Because when we look at attachment energetically, it's just suffering. It's just tightness. What would it be like, like use your imagination, vision, what would it be like, in share different situations in your life, what would it be like to take my kid to the dentist without attachment? without fear, but to be a functional parent? Or what would it be like to have this difficult conversation at work without attachment? Is attachment needed to be skillful? This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
www.ghostbusters.org slash donate.